Well, welcome back to our study of the book of Revelation, our apocalypse series. I'm glad to see so many of you faithful since we're in the middle of the tribulation. You have survived the first half of the tribulation. I think that's pretty impressive. You know, seven seals and seven trumpets. You guys are hanging in there. I'd call that perseverance. Uh, seriously, uh, we're just in a great place in the book of Revelation, but let me say a prayer for us and then we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to come together and reason together and study your word that it might give us a greater knowledge of who you are and what you're doing in the world, that it might translate into a compassion for those in our world who are lost. And Father, that it might also come out through our words, our deeds, that we might demonstrate your love to this world. Father, I pray for our nation. I pray for our world that seems to be so close to the edge of war. And Lord, I know that's always been that way through history, but I pray that you would turn our leaders' hearts toward you, that we might be a beacon of truth, might be a beacon of justice and of what is right in this world. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as normal, the number for questions is on your handout, should be handout online as well. And just text your questions in during class and happy to answer as many of those as we can. So at the beginning of each of these lessons, I always do a little bit of a recap and I'll try to keep it pretty short. And so that might get a little repetitive, but the goal of this is to help us understand and a little repetition really will cement some of these ideas in your mind. I want you to have a, a scaffolding, if, it, if you will, so that when you read the book of Revelation, you understand the structure, even if we don't always understand every little detail, we have a scaffolding to make some sense out of it and it's really useful to us. And one of the great pieces of scaffolding is the four different views of this, this portion of the book of Revelation. So remember, roughly speaking, chapters one through three are visions to John where Jesus says, write these letters to the seven churches. Then chapters four through 19 are what we call the period of tribulation. And what it really is, is God is judging the earth and the gods of the earth and Satan and the evil on the earth. It is a process of judging. It's all coming out of the throne room in heaven, which you, you see in a vision in chapter four. And everything that happens after that emanates from that throne room. This is where we are. We are in the middle of that time period. And then chapter 20 is the millennium. When we finish this tribulation, we'll go to chapter 20, which is about the millennium and a great judgment. And chapters 21 and 22 are about uh, the new heavens and the new earth. So how do people look at this period of tribulation? Well, a preterist view says that these visions have all happened in the first century. Historicist says all through the church age, the futurist says, in a seven-year period in the future, and symbolic or idealist said, actually, these are recurring truths that have happened many times and will happen many times. These are all orthodox views. They're just trying hard to understand the scripture. So let me tell you where we are and when we are. This is a futurist view of the book of Revelation. So uh, this is specifically a futurist view. So you have Israel, you have the cross of Christ, and of course the resurrection. Then you have the church age. We are in the church age and have been since 30 AD, the resurrection of Christ, until the second coming of Christ is the church age. Then there will be a millennium, a rapture, tribulation, millennium, and final judgment. And so futurists of whatever variety typically believe in a rapture. There are two main flavors of futurist, and we'll talk about that later. But basically, they see chapters four through 19 happening in a literal seven-year period right here. And we are, in chapter 13, we are literally in the middle, three and a half years in to that seven-year period. So that is where we are in the book of Revelation. This will be chapter 20 in the book of Revelation. This will be chapter 21 to 22 in the futurist view. So that makes sense? It's kind of a nice little linear progression. This is just a chart I'm using. Don't pay a lot of attention. Ignore the millennium. You don't see that. All right, so basically, the other views can best be understood 
is the cross, so let's call that roughly 30 AD, and of course the resurrection of Christ. And at some point there'll be a second coming. And the tribulation is not a seven year period. The number seven is so symbolic, it could, it could indeed be understood as not, not specifically seven years, but a, a full amount, a period of time. And so historicists will say, the whole time between the first coming and the second coming, that's what chapter 19 is telling you about. And so it's, it's a historical, we're in the middle of history. We're probably around 1600 AD, a historicist. By chapter 13, you've, you've seen symbols that told you about all of history and that's about how far we are. So that's a historicist. Preterist view, of course, says all of this stuff happened right here at the fall of Jerusalem. It's just the whole book right there, right around the time of the 70 AD. I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush, so if this is one of your views, I'm not trying to not do it justice, I just wanna be brief. So right around the time of that. Spiritualist or uh, symbolic says, actually these events happen here and here and here and here and probably will also happen in the future. So does that make sense for what the views are? Any way you look at it, we're somewhere in this tribulation period. Whether it's seven years in the future, we're right in the middle of it. If it's the whole time between the first and second coming of Christ, we're kind of in that period. They wouldn't necessarily say we're in the middle of it, but in that basic period. So in our last lesson, we finished chapter 12. What happened in chapter 12? Well, all the way up to chapter 11, you've got God's judgments. He opens seven seals and judges the earth. Cataclysmic things happen. Then seven trumpets get blown. And again, he judges the earth and cataclysmic things happen on the earth. But chapter 12 is sort of like a timeout, let's go to commercial. And I wanna do a flashback and I wanna remind you that Satan is at work here during this time period. And so chapter 12 says the great dragon who is Satan or the devil pursues a woman who is pregnant and that's a symbol for Israel and she's about to give birth to the Messiah. And so Satan says, as soon as you give birth to the Messiah, I'm gonna kill him. Think Herod trying to kill the babies right after Jesus was born, but he fails. And the Messiah is crucified and taken up to heaven and he is so angry, right? He realizes, oh, I've been foiled. You know, God outfoxed me and Jesus really did uh, bear the sins of all these people. And so, at the end of chapter 12, it says, so that's not telling you what's happening right then. That's just reminding you, this is what's happened in the plan of God. God is trying to redeem you. Satan wants to destroy you. And so, at the end, it says, then the dragon became furious with the woman, Israel, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Well, who are the offspring of Israel? Well, it tells you. It says, those who hold to the testimony of Jesus and keep the commandments of God. Christians, Christ followers. So we are the children of God's plan. First there was Israel, then the Messiah, and then all who trust in the Messiah. And so Satan goes off to start making war and trying to destroy Christ followers, Christians. And so chapter 12 says, okay, now that you know that, let's get back to the story. And so now here we are halfway through the, uh, and ask questions about that, but that's my recap. That's kind of where we are. I want you to know the, the, the context of this. So then the very next verse, John says, I saw a vision and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. And this beast had 10 horns, seven heads, and 10 diadems on its horns, and it had blasphemous names on its seven heads. So let's just stop for a second and let's talk about what is going on here. Well, no matter who you are, if you're a futurist, historicist, symbolic, everybody understands this isn't literal in the sense that, oh, in the future there's gonna be some weird beast comes out. It's gonna be you know, it's, it's gonna be another one of those you know, weird movies, you know, kind of Japanese horror movies, right? It's, that's not what's happening. That's clearly trying to send you a message by using some symbols. Well, let's decode the symbols a little bit. First of all, you have the dragon, who is Satan. And Satan is gonna raise up two other entities, 
One is gonna be the beast from the sea and we'll meet the beast from the land in a minute. But let's talk about this beast from the sea. So the sea is a symbol in all through the Old Testament of the Gentile world. And in the Old Testament, you had two categories. You had the Jews who belonged to God, you had the Gentiles who did it. And so it's a political entity. It's a pagan entity. It's not a Christian entity or a Jewish entity. It's a power entity, whether it's a person or it's a government, we'll talk about in a minute. But it's an, it is representative of some kind of worldly power that's against God. How's it against God? Blasphemous names on its head. In other words, it doesn't say has praise songs tattooed on its head, right? So blasphemous names means I'm against God. I don't even believe in God. I think I'm gonna be God, okay? So this beast is a political power of some kind that is against God. Seven heads, if you remember, the dragon has seven heads. And so this is sort of like the son of the dragon, if you will. It's connected to the dragon, Satan, the image that represents Satan is the dragon. So it's kind of the child or the relative of Satan. Having 10 horns, couple of ideas. Horns mean strength or power. And so it could mean it's gonna have all kinds of worldly power, and that's true. But most commentators see this beast as being an entity that's going to rule 10 kingdoms. And if you're a futurist, you see this is, this is the Antichrist. And so you'll see this creature referred to as the Antichrist. So it's not really a beast. It's really symbolically saying to you, by the way, Satan's gonna raise up an Antichrist. And the Antichrist is gonna be against God. He's gonna be all about being God himself and wanting Satan to rule the world. He's gonna be really powerful and he's gonna rule over, if you're a futurist, you think he's gonna rule over 10 major kingdoms in the tribulation in the future, and then he's gonna do some ugly stuff with that. If you don't think, if you're not a futurist, those 10 horns are, yes, he could easily be representative of 10 kingdoms or just great power. So you get the idea, regardless of your point of view, you get the idea, what is this? Satan has risen up a son, the son of Satan, an anti-Christ. Anti means against or opposite. And so Satan is opposed to God. He's gonna raise up a Christ, the son, who is opposed to Christ. That's what this beast is representing. So let's go on. And the beast that I saw now we're gonna describe the beast and we're, and, uh, you're gonna, we're gonna go back to the Old Testament because this is all telling us something about this Antichrist. John said, the beast that I saw was like a leopard, feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion. Those three animals, are, we have heard them before. And the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority to this Antichrist. He's lending his authority saying, I want you to go out and destroy all those Christians and get all these people on earth to worship me. And so the, the leopard and the bear and the lion tell you something about this creature. Where you've heard that before in the Old Testament is in the book of Daniel. Now we've gone back to think about 550 years before the time of Christ. And Daniel has a vision, and he has a vision, he has two, but the one that this refers to is here. And Daniel said, I saw in a vision at night, the four winds of heaven were stirring up a great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea. So the great beasts are what? They're worldly powers. These are not, uh, you know, these are not Mother Teresa here, okay? They're not godly powers, they're worldly powers. And he saw four beasts come up out of the sea. Each one was different. The first one was like a lion. I'm not gonna go into all the details. And then the second one was like a bear. And then another like a leopard. So here are three animals. And then after this, I saw a fourth 
beast, terrifying, dreadful, extremely strong, iron teeth, and it devoured and, and broke everything in front of it. Well, the same symbology here. Daniel's talking about four great kingdoms, three of which are identified with an animal. And I'll just tell you who they are because we know this from history. And so the first, the lion, was the uh, Babylonians, Babylon. That's how the Jews got deported in 586 BC. Babylon destroyed the temple, destroyed God's people. I mean, this is an earthly kingdom allied against God. The second one, the bear is the Persian kingdom. Persia uh, overthrew the Babylonians and they were the great world power. And the Persian king was also felt like he was a god and he ruled, Persian kingdom was huge. And then the leopard was Alexander the Great and the Greek kingdom that came after him that led, by the way, almost all the way up to the time of Jesus. And the fourth kingdom was Rome, stronger than all of them. I mean, absolute iron, uh, just dominated everything. And so Daniel's vision was God forecasting the great powers and kingdoms of the earth all the way from the time of Daniel to the time of Jesus, who's born into the Roman Empire period, the oppressive Roman Empire. These are evil empires, they don't honor God. They're very powerful. They were all world empires at that time. So when you describe, now I'm gonna go back to our revelation. When you see that the Antichrist, the beast from the sea, looks like a leopard and a lion and a bear, it says this Antichrist is the culmination of, and the, I mean the pinnacle of the powers of the earth allied against God. In other words, this Antichrist is a world ruler or an empire, an entity or a person, we'll talk about that some more, who encompasses the, the legacy of the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and the Romans, all of which are great empires that were evil and oppressed people and oppressed God's people and they were blasphemous in the sense that they thought they were the gods of the earth. And so you, all this symbology comes around to thinking, okay, this antichrist is sort of the ultimate. So if you're a futurist, you say, all of those bad kingdoms in the world that were allied against God, the antichrist is gonna rule the final, biggest, greatest kingdom against God, which leads to Armageddon later. So if you're a futurist, this is very clear. If you are a historicist or if you are a uh, symbolic, you say, this is an example of all the kingdoms that were allied against God. If you're a historicist, now I've told you, these are the reformers mainly. This is Luther and, and uh, Zwingli and Calvin and all those guys, Wesley. They all saw the Catholic Church as the Antichrist, the papacy, not like a specific person. But what they saw is that you get the papacy has ruled people for 1,260 years. 1,260 is three and a half years, 1,260 days. And that even though the papacy claimed, think about what the Pope claimed at the time of the Reformation. The Pope said, I have the power to forgive sins. I represent Christ on earth. I have all earthly power. The popes at that time were, were very corrupt. They were telling the nations what to do and they were wielding God's authority for personal gain and personal power. Those Renaissance popes around that time, about 1500, is when they, the historicists said, okay, that's who the Antichrist is. I'm not telling you that, I'm just saying you would see it that way if you had this historicist view. Any way you look at it, this antichrist, whether it's an individual or it's a empire, is going to be in the service of Satan and is going to be like, just like Jesus is the son of God, this is gonna be the son of Satan, trying to get everybody to worship Satan and exercising oppressive evil power to do it. One other thing that's worth saying about the antichrist, 
Look at, check this out, this is interesting. One of its heads, so the Antichrist got seven heads, like his dad, uh, the devil, right, the dragon. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but the mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. That's just so very interesting. All right, so there are two ideas of what does this mean. So this Antichrist is, think about, it's basically the opposite of Christ, but want to be Christ. Want everybody to worship them. So Jesus Christ is killed and resurrected. Dies on the cross, is resurrected. This Antichrist is going to receive a mortal wound, but recovers. So it's sort of like the devil's version of, ah, my son was resurrected as well. And so whoever this Antichrist is, is going to seem to be killed, but not killed. And so if you're a futurist, you're like, okay, this is, you can see what, what Satan is doing. Satan's trying to build a little trinity of his own. There's also, if you're a preterist, if you think this happens early on, you, you really want to identify this Antichrist with a specific Roman emperor, because you think all this is talking about around 70 AD. So I want to take you back to uh, Nero. Nero was emperor of Rome from 54 to 68, right before the destruction of the temple by uh, the Romans. And Nero was not a good emperor. Nero thought he was a god, and he was allied against God, and Nero persecuted Christians. Nero's the one that had Paul beheaded and had Peter crucified and uh, burned up Rome and blamed it on the Christians and just brutal persecution. So here's an interesting little legend about Nero. This isn't a Christian legend. This legend was in the ancient world. So Nero, in addition to being evil and powerful, is just loony. And so he kills himself, right? He thinks he's gonna lose power and so he stabs himself in the neck and kills himself. He receives a mortal wound. But a rumor went around, very persistent. You can read about this in the ancient literature. People thought that Nero was going to come to life and rule the Roman Empire again. So if you're a preterist, you say, that's talking about Nero, and it's all happening early on. If you're a futurist, you're saying, this ruler, whoever he is, is gonna stage a kind of a resurrection in the future. So you get the sense, though, regardless of the details of this, you get the sense and the idea that Satan has brought up his son to be the political leader and the heir to the earth and sent him out to look as much like a dark version of Christ as he could. Does that make sense? That's essentially the images that you're getting of the Antichrist. We're going to find out a lot more of what the Antichrist is going to do in future chapters, but you kind of, the symbology here tells you a lot about who do you need to understand this Antichrist is. So whether it's Nero, who's been uh, is going to come back, whether it's the papacy that's pretended to be God on earth, or whether it's an individual in the future, you get a sense of who and what is the Antichrist about. It says, and the people, we're just moving right on through chapter 13, and they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. So the Antichrist is powerful and the people say, you are so awesome. And he says, yep, you guys should worship my dad. Needless to say, he doesn't say my dad is Satan. He just says, I call upon a higher power that's gonna help me unify the world and bring peace throughout the world. You're gonna hear a kind of a utopian vision uh, from, from them. And so, and the whole world worshiped the dragon. He'd given authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast and they said, who is like the Antichrist? Who could possibly fight against the Antichrist? And the Antichrist was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, meaning whatever vision that the Antichrist is casting, it is not a godly vision. It's not a Christ-honoring vision. And so he was allowed, that's interesting, he was allowed to exercise his authority for 42 months. That's three and a half years. And so the second half of the seven years, that three and a half, 
is all about the Antichrist trying to stamp out the Christians and rule the world for Satan. And that's what we're gonna see in the last three and a half years. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, those who dwell in heaven. And so the Antichrist, you get a really good picture and it takes, I mean, it uses a lot of verses here to describe it with a lot of symbology, but it's very clear. Whoever or whatever the Antichrist is, is clearly going to be allied with Satan and opposed to God and opposed to God's people. The scriptures talk about this. In Matthew, this is Jesus speaking. For false Christs, antichrists, false Christs, false messiahs, and false prophets will appear. And they'll even perform what looks like great signs and miracles to deceive people, to follow after them instead of God. And that's what the Antichrist is doing. What Jesus said, you see this vision in Revelation that the Antichrist is gonna come and say, I was resurrected, I had a mortal wound, but I'm alive, look at me. I'm a dark version of Christ and I've got this vision for great peace in the world, which is not that unusual if you think about it. All the great oppressors in the world came with a vision of peace and, and goodwill. Not many people said, you should elect me because I'm gonna oppress everybody. You should elect me because I'm gonna kill millions of people. No, they didn't do that, did they? Think of some of the great butchers of say the 20th century. So uh, Adolf Hitler comes to power in Germany, things are not good. The Germans elected this guy. Why did they elect him? Because he said, I'll bring respect back to the German people that we lost in World War I, I'll bring economic prosperity back to you. And they said, you're a really good speaker and I think you can do this. And they elected the guy. And next thing you know, he's killing people left and right. Think about Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong killed millions of people, but he came to power saying, I have a communist utopia. I'm gonna be for the people and I'm gonna throw off that power and now we're all gonna live in love and peace and it's gonna be kumbaya every day. And that's the communist vision. I mean, today you think, why would anybody be a communist? Well, now, knowing what you know now, nobody would be a communist. But then the promise was, hey, all those people are oppressing you. We're gonna, we're gonna do this right. And then, of course, goes on to be uh, a powerful ruler who, who kills millions of his own people. Same happened in Soviet Union with uh, Lenin, but more so Stalin. The whole idea was those czars have been oppressing you. They're like kings and queens. They're living in luxury and you can barely eat. You just turn it over to us and we're all gonna share and share alike. Turns out some share a little more than others. Turns out Stalin killed millions of people. So my point to you is this has happened many times in history. It's not hard to understand how an antichrist will come and be so bloody and oppressive but people will start out saying, wow, the Antichrist is awesome. This ruler's great. Does that make sense? So I don't want you to read this and go, oh, it's like a fairy tale. Oh no, that's real history. That's really happening in the world today. And so this is very plausible. Uh, John, in 1 John uh, letter says, dear children, we are in the last hour, meaning we are in the church age and the next big thing that's gonna happen is the tribulation and the coming of Christ. He said, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. So is this Antichrist is usually thought of Antichrist with a capital A. But many people that have opposed Christ have come throughout history. So I just want you to know that if the Antichrist doesn't just show up in the book of Revelation. There's prophecy that there are going to be people allied against Christ as time goes on that are trying to oppress God's people and trying to rule the world. So let's pause there for a second before we go to the second beast and see what questions do you have. Okay, so why will the whole earth marvel as they follow the beast? Will true Christians be tempted by the Antichrist during this period? Yes, very good question. Will Christians be tempted? Yes, they will. Because Satan is the great deceiver. The name uh, Satan, the devil, Satan means the adversary, the accuser. 
Devil is diabolos in Greek, which means the deceiver, one who lies to you. And so that is who Satan is. And so the Antichrist, this leader, whoever they are, or this kingdom, is going to put forth a very great message, but it is essentially not going to be a godly message. You remember that God says he described the Christ followers as those who follow the commands of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Christians won't worship the Antichrist. They won't worship any human. He's not gonna come out and say, I'm the Antichrist. You Christians should worship me. And we go, oh yeah, mom told me about you. No, it's not the way it's gonna go, right? They're gonna come out and they're gonna say, hey, I'm a good guy. I'm gonna bring world peace. You should worship me. And you will need to violate some of the commands of God. So there will be temptation for Christians, but it's not gonna be like you are tricked. If we indeed are doing what the scripture said, holding to the testimony of Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And if we are obeying the commands, you know, we read our New Testament, we say, we know what our God asks of us, then we will not uh, transgress that. I don't want you to feel like, oh my goodness, will I, will I be tricked? You will be tempted, but I do not believe that you can be tricked if you're following Christ. Good question. Um, I have several uh, questions that have candidates being suggested in history and in the future for the Antichrist. Yes. And we can get into some of those if you want to, but one question is, do you think the Antichrist will know he is the Antichrist? You know, that is a subtle question. Will the Antichrist know that he is the Antichrist or will he also be duped? I'm trying to think of a short way to answer this. So I'm gonna give you my opinion about this just based on what I've read of scripture. The Antichrist is going to think that he, I'll tell you why I think this. Think about Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians. He was a powerful guy going about his own business, but you know what? He ended up doing what God wanted him to do. He destroyed the Jews and God had said, by the way, if you don't repent, Bad things will happen, but I will bring you back. And he did. And so you can, these leaders can be evil, wanting their own power, but they think they're doing a good thing. They're just trying to get ahead in life. They're just trying to be a Vladimir Putin or they're trying to be a Xi Jinping or whatever. And so they're trying to be a ruler. Do they always know that they are serving a higher power? In this case, you are about Satan's ends in the, in the world. According to the scriptures, I don't think that's necessarily so. I think that many people in our world today are effectively about Satan's business in the world. And that is persecuting Christians, being unkind to people, me first, it's all about self, I'm gonna be my own God. That's Satan's agenda for people. But do the average person you meet, you go to your neighbor and say, man, you're doing an awful lot of stuff. And they go, I know, I'm, I'm about Satan's business in the world. No, they think they're about their business in the world. So that's a very astute question and I'll stop there, but I'm not convinced that the Antichrist knows everything. I'm not saying no, but I also can understand historically those leaders, they were evil, but they just thought they were doing their business. They were actually doing Satan's business. So great question. So who are some candidates? I'd like to hear some of yours but, uh, that you've nominated, but I'll give you a few. Uh, obviously you got Hitler, and I'm just staying recent because there are people all through the 2000 years of history have seen people and go, that's gotta be the Antichrist. And, and there's some truth in that. They fulfill a lot of the, uh, of a lot of the characteristics, but are they the Antichrist? I told you historicists think that it's the papacy, uh, usurping God. Here's a one is uh, the United Nations, is that's an entity. It's sort of like, there are a lot of people that think the Antichrist is not just an individual, it's a revived and a new Roman Empire. Remember how that beast looks like all those other empires? This is going to be an empire or a nation or a great power in the world that just, boy, it has all the characteristics of Rome, meaning, its leader thinks it's a god, it's not godly, it's oppressing God's people, it's oppressing everyone else, it's a, a totalitarian kind of government, it's a new Roman Empire, if you will. And so that's a point of view, that it's an entity. And 
I remember when the United Nations, uh, decades ago, was being given more and more authority in the world, there were a lot of Christians that said, oh my goodness, this is gonna be the one world government. And thought, could this be the one world government and some charismatic ruler takes it over and rules the world and oh my goodness, we're in the middle of the tribulation. Okay, so I'm just saying that various people have had various ideas and it's not always an individual. Any suggestions from the audience? Well, um, the U.S. or NATO yeah, along those no same No current lines. political figures, please. We I'm just kidding. Along those same lines, the U.S. or NATO as an organization and not a person. Right. Um, Gilgamesh Nimrod. That's interesting. How about from Tim Cohen's book, The Antichrist in a Cup of Tea, King Charles? Good historicist points of view. When you, when you talk about historical figures like this, I'm just saying, this fits into the historicist view of the book of Revelation. So I, I hear that. The, the current King Charles. Oh, this one. Oh, I thought you meant the old one. Oh, this Charles? Man, he's not that charismatic. Okay, sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have said that, I'm sorry. No, that's a good point. And then the usuals. Then the usual, uh, usual suspects. So that will. But honestly, in every generation, people have, have looked, and this is, this is the symbolic point of view. I'm not pushing it on you. I'm just taking opportunities to say, this is why symbolic people think the way they do. They go, I can name you off somebody through all of history that kind of fits that mold, at least broadly fits that mold. Maybe God's telling that story over and over and over and over. And maybe there will be one big old antichrist at the end. But that's one reason symbolic people say, you know what, this book is not just telling me about some future time that I'm not living in. It's telling all Christians of all times that you're going to see antichrists. You're gonna see oppressive governments and people. So that's why symbolic people think the way they do. But then futurists tend to look at specific rulers or specific uh, kingdoms that are gonna come together. One of the things that futurists, we'll get into this more as time goes on in the book of Revelation, but one of the ideas of the futurist is you will see a coalition of 10 great powers. Remember the 10 horns and a ruler will end up being over those 10. So if you're a futurist, you're looking at current events and you're seeing uh, some pretty unprecedented things and you think, hey, we might be ready for the tribulation because you see uh, Xi Jinping is uniting some of the Arab countries. That's unparalleled, that China, if you recall, uh, got Saudi Arabia, this is in the news now. And this is futurist look at the news now. Symbolic, it's like, ah, that's happened for 2,000 years, don't bore me. But futurists are like, hey, look what's happening right now. China brokered a deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. They haven't had diplomatic relations for a while. They do not like each other. And it's like, whoa, something's happening. Xi Jinping is in Moscow, cutting a deal there. And so now you see, wait a minute, we got Iran and we got Russia and we've got China. Boy, this is sure looking like we're getting a big old coalition of great powers in the world, and maybe there will be a ruler raised up. So futurists are looking at this symbology and translating it into current events. Now, preterists think it's all already happened, and historicists think now nah, that we're in the middle of it. But futurists in particular say, since we're coming up on a seven-year period, you need to be watching the newspaper because some of this stuff's happening. Is that helpful? So that's, if you're a futurist, you're really looking at these kinds of modern powers thinking, could we be close to the, the period of tribulation? And honestly, there's some compelling ideas there, aren't there? That's why this is one of the more popular views of ways of looking at, at Revelation. Okay, let's go on. And the beast was allowed to make war on the saints. By the way, allowed. Who's allowing it? God is allowing it. And that's one thing I want you to know. On the one hand, you're saying, oh my gosh, why would he do that? Well, set that aside for a minute. I wanna focus on the flip side of that coin and that is God is allowing it. Satan and the Antichrist are not even close to as powerful as God is. Satan is doomed. It's not even going to be a contest. And he's angry and he's lashing out and it's some 
for some reason, it serves God's purpose to allow hardship for Christians during this period. Somehow, it has served God's purpose to allow some hardship in your life. It served God's purpose to allow hardship in the lives of Christians. I'll actually tell you what that purpose is. It's what God's always about with his people, strengthening and refining your faith because your circumstances won't last, but your faith goes on into eternity. And so the point I wanna make here though is don't think that when you have troubles in life or if you have troubles in the tribulation that this is, oh no, nothing, my God can't do anything about it. No, you know that Satan is doomed. You know that the powers of this earth are doomed. You know that your oppressors in life are doomed. You can kill my body and my soul will live forever and you will be thrown into the lake of fire. Oh, spoiler alert, that's at the end. I shouldn't have told you that. But anyway, bad guys get punished. So it's important to know that, you know what, even though all this stuff seems so big, in our lives or in, in geopolitical terms, God is the one pulling the strings. All of history moves to God's purposes, not Satan's purposes. So anyway, he was, uh, gets every tribe, people, language, and nation. What does the number four mean, four adjectives? The earthly things. Most of the earth ends up uh, worshiping him and following along, getting with his program. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. In other words, the non-Christian, the non-believers, that, that's actually a deep subject, but I'll leave it unless you wanna talk some more about it. But anyway, he says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. That's just code that says, hey, this is really important. Some of you are gonna be taken captive. Some of you are gonna be killed. And that has been true of Christians throughout time. He said, but here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. God is faithful to us through our suffering. He does not necessarily rescue us from our suffering because he has a greater purpose for that. So that's kind of the story. As we get through 10, in 10 short verses, this is Satan has risen up, an antichrist. Then he says, I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. So if the sea is a political entity, the earth is a spiritual entity. And so Antichrist is going to be a powerful ruler, gonna be worshiped as a god, gonna be the son of Satan. Those are my terms, not revelations. This is the false prophet. This is how, I'm, I'm skipping ahead, but this you will find out later, this is the false prophet. So you have the dragon Satan, you have the beast from the sea, the antichrist, the beast from the land, a religious entity or a religious figure who is the false prophet. And I want you to stop and think, what do we have here? You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Satan says, what has Satan always wanted? I'm gonna be God. And so I'm gonna get a son, an antichrist, and I'm gonna get a Holy Spirit, a false prophet, who's gonna go out and get people to worship me. Satan has set up his own little trinity because he wants to be God and he wants to rule the world and he's angry and he's mean, well, partly because that's who he is, but he knows he is doomed. And so this beast has two horns like a lamb. Who does that sound like? Who do, who's the lamb in this book? Jesus. So he acts like a Christian, but he speaks like the dragon false prophet, false teacher. This is a charismatic figure that says, actually, God wants you to worship the Antichrist. He's such a good guy, and the Bible says it's okay to worship the Antichrist. And so who is this false prophet? This is a religious figure who is doing Satan's business and who is getting people to worship the first beast. So the false prophet exercises all the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, the Antichrist, whose mortal wound was healed. So this is gonna come as kind of a very God-friendly thing, but it will be anything but. You remember the image, a wolf in sheep's clothing? That's who this is wearing the clothing of a lamb, like I'm a Christ follower, I also believe in Jesus, and I want you to go sin. I want you to go worship the beast. This is gonna be a religious entity or a religious power. 
And in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. That's Satan's MO, deceive people, lie to people, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so the image might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So this is a bit of an oppressive religion, isn't it? What do historicists think this is? Too easy. The Antichrist is the papacy, the false prophet is the priesthood who killed a lot of the reformers, were killed by the Catholic Church. And so if you're one of the historicists, which originated out of the reformers, they say Catholic Church did all of this stuff to the true believers. If you're a futurist, you say, no, this hasn't happened yet. But the Antichrist is gonna have this whole religion thing going. Like, I'm a friend of God, but not really. I'm serving Satan. And so you're gonna see the deceptive nature of Satan in this uh, thing. And it's, this has illusions back to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he built the big statue, and uh, everybody's gonna worship the statue. And Daniel's buddies said, no, we're not gonna worship this statue. And he said, fine, I'm gonna throw you into the furnace. And this is that kind of language, like we're gonna make everybody worship the Antichrist or else. It also causes the false prophet, everybody, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. And this mark is the name of the beast or the number of its name, and that number is 666. So this is the mark of the beast. So let's talk about that. So who's gonna give the mark of the beast? False prophet. And what is the mark of the beast? Two ideas. Number one, economic persecution. The whole point of the mark of the beast is you can't participate, you can't buy, you can't sell. And you know what, this has always been true. Before you get to physical persecution of Christians, putting them in jail, throwing them in the arena to be eaten by animals, uh, crucifying them like Nero did and for 200 years like the Roman Empire did, before that happened, Christians were always economically persecuted, economically marginalized. And so when you read some of the early letters in the New Testament, he talks to the Christians saying, I know how much you're suffering. You know what some of their suffering was? Because you're a Christian and you won't worship Zeus or you won't worship the emperor anymore, you don't get any work and you can't make any money and your mortgage defaults and you lose your house and your kids can't get into schools. In other words, Christians have always been persecuted socially and economically. That's what's happening. He starts by persecuting the Christians economically. But he does it by some kind of a, a mark of the beast. And this mark is gonna let you participate in the economy or not participate in the economy. And the mark is this number of his name, this number 666. So there are a lot of ideas of what will the mark be. Strictly with the uh, economic thing, some people think you'll get a chip and it's gonna be like your tap credit card, right? You got your chip wherever you go, government tracks you, knows where you are, it's how you buy, it's how you sell, and you can only do it if you participate and worship the system of the beast, right? So some people would say it's something physical like that. Other people, however, say, wait a minute, this mark of the beast means that you have given your allegiance to the beast that's what it really means, being marked for the beast means I'm all in on this. I'm, I'm all in on worshiping this great world leader and I'm in on the new cult of worshiping this leader and I will somehow be marked. So what is this mark? You remember how God, the number, the divine number for God is seven and that's because it's a complete perfect number. You have seven seals, you have seven trumpets, you're about to have seven bowls of wrath. Seven meaning this is divine judgment and three times meaning whoa, emphasis. We talked about how Hebrew, you know, you emphasize things by repeating it three times. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. So a lot of people look at the book of Revelation and go, this is God's judgment. It's God's because there's seven of everything and it's God's final judgment because he repeats it three times, seven 
judgments, seven judgments, seven judgments. So this is God's judgment. What does the number six mean? Well, six is one taco short of the sampler platter, okay? I mean, it's not quite seven. It's defective. So six is man's number, the number of imperfection. It's not a divine number. It's a wannabe's number, right? Like six is, and now repeat it three times, six, six, six. Six is defective. It's evil, whereas seven is divine and good. So one short means you don't really measure up, but you think you do. Who's that sound like? Satan. Six, six, six. Evil, evil, evil. Imperfection, 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 but think you're God. That's the number of Satan. That's the meaning of that. Well, who is this individual that we're referring to? This, this is the number of their name. So let me explain an ancient idea. This would have been very familiar to them. This is still around today. You just may not participate in it, but it's called gematria. Gematria is sort of like, you, you've read things like the Bible code, where if you read the Bible in Hebrew backwards every 27th letter, and oh my goodness, it says Prince Charles is king of, of England. You know, it's, it's somehow got a prophetic code in it. Well, gematria is kind of a code, and it basically takes people's names and gives them a number. This doesn't make much sense to you and me, makes tons of sense in the ancient world. You see, they didn't have letters and numbers. So we have an alphabet, A, B, C through Z. We are rich, we can also have numbers. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. They didn't. You know how you write numbers in, in, in all ancient languages, Hebrew, Greek, Farsi, all these ancient languages. You wrote numbers using the letters. Think Roman numerals, right? A V is five, well it's also a V. And an X is 10, well it's also an X. It's a letter. Hebrew, same way. So it would be like in our alphabet, A is one, B is two, C is three, D is four. Well, if that's the case, your name, I could just sort of say, oh, your name has an A, that's one, and you have a D, that's four, and I could add those numbers up, couldn't I? Well, that's the way ancient numberings work. In fact, when you're reading in Greek or you're reading in Hebrew, and you move along and you get to a word and you go, that is a weird word. I don't even know what that word means. You know what it is? It's probably a number because it doesn't really make a name. It's like, well, when you read in Greek that Jesus said he gave them 100 denarii, well, that 100 is, is letters. So what I'm saying is gematria is the idea that, well, if everybody's name has letters and the letters can also be numbers, I'll just add them up. So everybody's name has a number. And this is called gematria. So let me give you a couple of ideas. Oops, my bad. The title for the Pope, we're gonna go back to the historicists. I know we're being hard on the Catholics tonight, but I'm just telling you, this is what the historicist view holds, right? And so the title for the Pope is Vicarius Filii Dei, which translates to Vicar of the Son of God. And if you take those Roman Latin letters and you turn them into numbers, guess what it adds up to? How very convenient, if you're a historicist, that the Pope, the papacy is 666. What more evidence do you need? That's the Antichrist, right? But then the preterists say, not so fast. Because the spelling of the word Nero, remember I told you Nero got stabbed, the rumor he's gonna come back, and the preterists say, that's the Antichrist. Turns out, if you say put his name into Hebrew letters, we're reaching a little, I understand. Uh, these are the letters, and when you add them up, it comes up to 666. And so if you're a historicist, you say, clearly the Pope. If you're a preterist, you say, clearly Nero. If you're a futurist, you say, hmm, not exactly sure yet, but I'm watching for anybody that's got a 666 that might show up. Make sense? So this, in chapter 13, what you have basically, we've just basically gone through is kind of decoding the symbolism a little bit that Satan, after failing to destroy God's people, has set up his own little trinity, if you will, and it's religious and it's powerful. And now the stage is set, and I'll pause there, we'll take some questions, but now the stage is set 
for the next three and a half years and the Antichrist is gonna be the big figure in the next three and a half years. And that's why it's called the Great Tribulation. The second half is called the Great Tribulation because Antichrist and false prophet are turned loose on the world. So questions? Is the mark of this, this the beast, the 666, a juxtaposition for the seal of the Holy Spirit? And if you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, does that mean that you cannot be sealed by the beast, marked by the beast? That is a great question. Because right after this, I'm gonna fast forward here just a second into chapter 14. I mean, the chapter divisions are artificial. The very next thing is, he says, so I saw the beast, the false prophet, the unholy trinity, and they got a mark. Then I looked and there stood the lamb with the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their forehead. Everybody gets marked. And what I mean by that is, everybody has given their allegiance to someone and your allegiance is either to God and the Christ and you have, quote, his name on your head, or you have given your allegiance to some worldly power, self-centeredness, but effectively, that's Satan, whether you know it or not. You're in rebellion and you have now taken on the mark of that beast, the mark of Satan, if you will. So everybody is marked and that's what this questioner is asking. If you remember, God stops back in earlier in Revelation, he stops everything and says, go seal all my people down there. I know who my people are. In fact, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1.13, when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, meaning God knows you are his and Satan knows who are his. And so this idea, you can go ahead and ask it again, but I wanted to set that background. So the specific question is, I think, can you, if you belong to God, belong to uh, Satan? This is gonna be a little complicated. It kind of goes back to the whole once saved, always saved thing, and I do not wish to open that can of worms with just a few minutes left, but the point is, is when you've been, I will tell you this, that if you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit and you are following Jesus Christ, remember what Jesus said? No one can snatch them out of my hand. Satan. The false prophet, the antichrist, is not powerful enough to drag you or pull you away from Jesus Christ. The only question would be, does my temptation, does that deception say, are we in Adam and in Eve and say, actually, I think I want to be God. So let me just set that aside and simply say this, there is no power on earth or in the heavens that can snatch you away from Jesus Christ. If your eyes are set on Jesus Christ, you're sealed with the Spirit, you're following him, nothing can, is powerful enough to take you away from God. That's the beauty of Romans 8, by the way, at the end. For I consider that neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor powers, or anything can separate us from the love of God. So I just want you to be assured about that. Good question. Okay, I have a couple of questions about the rapture. Interestingly enough, one of them is talking about verse seven and the other is talking about verse eight. Verse seven says, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. If that's the case, then that would imply there wasn't a rapture because there were still saints here. And in verse eight, it says, all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And that would seem to imply that everyone on earth will worship it because the followers of Christ are gone. What a little conundrum, isn't it? Verse seven says, no rapture. Verse eight says, rapture. So, let me navigate this. Therein lies the disagreement about the rapture. You know, there, there are things here that you could read we're drawing inferences. It's not like the verse just says, oh, by the way, there's a rapture. And the next one says, by the way, there's not. You know, that's not what it says. We're drawing inferences. And so here's how, so the first one is in verse seven, basically allowed to make war on the saints. Well, guess the church is not already in heaven. Unfortunately, those who believe there is a rapture would say, ho, 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 just a second. Yes, they are, but more people became Christian during the tribulation. So I'm just giving you point, counterpoint. Verse eight 
And the idea is that everybody on the earth will worship it except for those whose names have been written in the book of life means, oh my gosh, there must have already been a rapture. No, it's saying everybody who doesn't belong to Christ. So I, I respect the inferences that you're drawing. I would simply say that the other side has a little bit of a counter argument. You wouldn't want to be dogmatic about that. That's a good point. I appreciate you reading the text that closely. That's well done. Okay. And do we not think that Satan has read this book and knows the end? <laughs> kind of counting on you guys not to be posting this on social media because I'm 100% sure Satan is on social media, all right? I've seen him on social media. Now, that's a good point. See, this is the beauty of it. Satan knows that he is defeated. In fact, now I'm gonna go to just literature. Okay, so we're gonna go back to Paradise Lost, you know, this is, this is literature, way later. But it has the character of Satan saying, I would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Well, that's not true, I mean, it's just, it's fiction. But it captures the spirit of Satan, doesn't it? It says, I wanna be God, and even though I know I can't be God, I'm gonna take as many of them with me as I can. I mean, Satan is raw, evil, oppression, destruction for the sake of destruction. And believe me, there are forces in our world, and there always have been historical forces, that are deconstructing for the sake of deconstructing, bringing chaos for the, just to bring chaos, destroying just to destroy. And so that is Satan. So that question is well said. Satan does know that he is defeated. He knew it when Christ was resurrected and he realized, Satan, I, I, I no longer own this world. God is gonna redeem everyone who will place their trust in Jesus Christ. I'm no longer in power. I can kill their bodies, right? I can oppress them and I will just because I'm mean, but I no longer have a mortgage on their souls because Jesus Christ freed them. So yes, he does know. Yes, he's read the book. I doubt he's read it more than once. Does not want to be reminded. Okay, so the stage is set for the book to continue with the new characters, Antichrist and the false prophet. And next, we'll talk about the third set of seven judgments. Seven angels bring out seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so that's what we'll do next time. Thank you, guys.